Welcome to The Legal Lowdown. I'm your host, Diana Baudet, and joining me today is education attorney Tim Groves to talk about COVID-19 liability risks associated with reopening Massachusetts charter schools. Tim, welcome. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. We're very glad to have you. This is obviously a very timely, very urgent and important topic for Massachusetts charter schools. Um, Boy, I really feel for the school community right now. I think they are trying to build pyramids (laughs) right now. Um, So this will be a great review for schools that are um, looking to minimize risk right now. So how do you want to get started in terms of um, where you're seeing COVID-19 liability and the concern around that settling in? Yeah, sure. I think there's any number of points of entry. Uh, You know, as you point out, you know, these communities, and when we think about community, you know, one of the first things that came up, one of the initial questions, as you might imagine, we've been fielding a lot of questions from a lot of charter schools in Massachusetts and beyond. Um, And one of the first liability questions that really came in was, what is the potential liability for community spread for our institution? If someone says, boy, I got this, or my child got this at school, and now the whole town has it. Look at this, and we can make that allegation. And so that was a concern. It's obviously tricky to address, but was one of the first ones out of the gate. So that's not a bad point of departure. Okay, so um, that is a great point. Um, Can you start out by giving us a your definition for schools of community spread. And I mean, is it really possible that a school could be found liable for community spread and by whom? Uh, anything's possible in the new normal. Um, <laughs> you know, I can give you, um, you know, not my definition of community spread because, you know, that one certainly sent me to um, the CDC to look it up, you know, when I got fielded that question. And, you know, what how the CDC defines community spread is, it means people have been infected with the virus in an area. And, you know, including some who aren't sure how, where, when they got infected, they just know they're infected. And so, and now you've got this rolling kind of outbreak and we're looking for, we know the community, we know the area that's infected. We don't necessarily know the origin of that spread. So, you know, it is conceivable, you know, that if you're able to pinpoint this started at the school and here's where it started, you know, we've all heard of these, you know, kind of super spreader events, you know, and an elementary school is not Sturgis, but, um, you know, it could, if you did contact tracing and, and such, you know, it is conceivable, you know, that a thread, there was a conference in Boston that I think, you know, 35% of the subsequent COVID cases I just read uh, in Massachusetts have been traced to that, you know, conference back in March. Um, you know, so, so it is, you know, certainly within the realm of possibility. Mm-hmm. And how would you ind- address the sort of, you know, that, that Biogen meeting in Boston? There was no malintent. They had no idea. Whereas you see now um, that there was a wedding in Maine, a bachelorette party in Rhode Island, that's different um, because now we know better um, and we are aware. And how much does intent come in to play on something like this? Well, certainly intent can can come into play. You know, something someone's doing some something in a you know a willful or malicious, but but also just foreseeability really comes in you know, and standard of care. You know, when we talk about these types of claims, we're generally going to, you know, most of them are going to sound in negligence, right? There was a deviation from the standard of care. And that standard of care 
um, is a moving target. And it's far different today than it was in March um, around, uh, you know, if you're a conference planner, for example, to take it out of school context for a moment, and you were, you know, you were planning that that conference in March, you didn't have the information that a conference planner would have now as we stand in late August. And, you know, so the standard of care, you know, certainly subsequent guidances come out from various governmental agencies. I would imagine trade practice groups sticking with the conference planner example, you know, have given some guidance to their membership and also, you know, how conferences are being conducted, you know, from your peer institutions or your peer businesses around the country, your chambers of commerce, et cetera. And so the same thing applies, is applicable in the school setting, you know. So, um, you know, DC has given some guidance, um, you know, certainly CDC uh, has given guidance. There's been lots of guidance that's given. And so, um, you know, being that, that will inform the standard of care and what is reasonably foreseeable, um, you know, as we think about how might someone allege uh, you know, negligence um, that they contracted COVID based on a school's negligence and how might a school defend itself against such an allegation. Okay. So as an example, a school is sued for um, causing community spread. What's their liability? Yeah. You know, again, the, the classic lawyer answer, it depends. I, I'm sure, you know, in hosting some of these podcasts, you've probably heard that one more than once. You know, but it really, it really would depend on the nature of the allegation. You know, so someone, a plaintiff would have to allege the elements, you know, the standard kind of negligence tort elements, you know, so there's some actor omission on the part of the school um, that has given rise to an injury or harm in this case, you know, contracting COVID. Um, and so that amounts to a civil wrong for which a court would potentially uh, impose liability on the school. So without getting into just yet the weeds of like the Torts Claim Act and, you know, some sovereign immunity principles that might come to bear, let's just say, you know, okay, anyone can can sue anyone for pretty much anything. You can always make an allegation. But how is that allegation going to be judged? How is it going to be defended against? Um, and so, you know, the, the first thing we look to is the standard of care. Because if we talked about an act or omission, um, that is going to be negligent uh, or perceived to be negligent, it would have to be, you know, you start with as a deviation from that standard of care. So again, looking to the guidance of the government, was the school comporting with the guidance that is applicable in this context? And, you know, that comes from government agencies. You can also look around, again, National Association of Public Charter Schools. You know, they're going to all, all these entities are going to issue guidance and best practices. And the school hopefully has policies and procedures and is adhering to them, um, you know, that are in keeping with that guidance um, and in step with peer institutions that are doing similar things and confronting similar challenges. So, you know, if you're not deviating, that's a good thing. Uh, if you're deviating, you, you may have some problems. Um, but then there's also, you know, it's incumbent upon the plaintiff to connect his or her harm. You know, they have to show causation. So kids are going to be out doing, well, maybe, you know, some kids are not going to be doing much of anything. They're going to be home, you know, but it's going to vary very much from family to family, as we all have know, you know, know and have seen. Um, and so kids, some kids may be playing sports. Some kids may be, you know, doing in the choir or whatever it may be. And so, you know, there's, there has to be causation from that act of omission. There has to be a causal link between some act or omission on part of the school 
to the harm that is alleged, the contracting of COVID. Um, and so that doesn't require eliminating every other possibility. You know, the plaintiff doesn't have to do that, but, you know, has to show, you know, that has to connect it to the school by a causal link. Um, so that's basically, you know, just kind of reprising, reviewing, you know, the elements of, of negligence in this context. Okay. And you pointed to, you know, laws coming federally and state. Are those laws, are you noticing, are they pretty consistent or are the federal laws a little bit different than the Massachusetts laws? In which case, which ones do the schools follow? Yeah, you know, and, and, and it also, this that you raise a good question in phrasing it that way, you know, there's a difference between laws and there's guidance, right? Because a lot of what we're going on now that's going to inform standard of care in a tort um, case will be guidance that doesn't, you know, it's not even a law. It's not even necessarily a statute, but if the Department of Education has said, you know, here's, here's our reopening guidance, which we, you know, issued earlier in the summer, and here's what we think, you know, are the things that should decide, guide your decision-making, your policies, and how you reopen your schools, that's not a law, but in the context of tort, it is going to inform, you know, what is the applicable standard of care. So that's really going to matter. Um, and that, yeah, it will vary from state to state and community to community a little bit in terms of how does power schools with, you know, if you're in an area that is a hot zone, then you probably, you know, are not going to open for in-person learning. And so, you know, there will be certain best practices that will apply to you if you're in, you know, let's say stereotypically it's been a more remote or rural area that doesn't have that infection rate or spread or whatever, and maybe they're doing hybrid or maybe they're doing full in person, you know, again, it's going to be a sliding scale as to what informs the standard of care from one school to the other, even though they're acting on guidance that's coming from the same issuing authority. Yeah. Okay. That's a very good point. Um, Can you, for those of us listening that need a quick review, which would be mostly me, um, can you give us a quick explanation of tort liability? Because you're using the word tort quite a bit. Um, and just for those of us that are not completely clear on it, can you give us like your your tort for dummies definition? Sure, sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, because we're talking mostly about civil liability here, right? Not crim- not in the criminal context where we'll leave aside any kind of, you know, criminal acts that, that you know, we hope won't take place. So we're talking about, we started with the community spread. Someone makes an allegation like, you acted irresponsibly school and now we've got, um, you know, a COVID case in my house as a result. And so I'm going to try to hold you accountable for that. And so, you know, again, what we have, in, that would sound in negligence. So we say, school, you're negligent because you, by some act or omission of one of your employees, um, your administration, one of your employees, one of your teachers, you caused this harm, this infection. And so I have suffered damages as a result of your deviation from that standard of care. So there's a standard of care, right? There's a harm. Uh, there's a causal link between a deviation on the part of the school uh, from the standard of care and the harm that's allegedly suffered by the plaintiff. So that's basically kind of the the whole negligence uh, regime in, in a nutshell. Okay, that's great. And then are schools allowed to sort of view things differently? Say the, the negligence was the administration, school body as a whole didn't take temperatures for a week. That's like very hypothetical. And that was a negligence as opposed to teacher 
was either caring for someone with COVID, had been exposed to someone with COVID, or went to a big party. And then knowingly and willingly went into the school and infected people. Are there, is there a difference in terms of the school's liability between those two things? Yeah, well, in one instance, you know, you've got the school, say the governing body, body is negligent in not adopting policy, right? Okay, and so at that instance, it would be really kind of at the school level, acting through its governing body, you know, there's negligence in opening school without taking proper measures uh, to protect the employees and the students, right? So, so, and then in the other instance, so that'd be a direct liability um, against the, the school board. In the other instance that you described, you'd have an allegation where it would be kind of vicarious liability. So you have, well, I mean, it'd be a little bit of both. Um, you know, the school would be um, allegedly on the hook for the actions of its teacher. If it had policies in place and the teacher kind of ignored or subverted those policies by, you know, I needed to do uh, a health declaration every morning before I went to school, whether it's on an app or whatever it might be. No, haven't had a, a fever. No, haven't had contact. You know, no, haven't gone to any parties. However, you know, in depth or invasive, and that's a whole nother question in terms of liability. We want that kind of attestation to be, you know, the school in comporting with the standard of care would want to have those policies in place. And then if those are not adhered to by the faculty, you know, that opens kind of another can of worms. And again, you can have policies and, you know, blithely kind of look the other way when it's obvious that they're not being uh, complied with. And then, you know, that's another form of negligence. So there are layers of it and it all depends, it, you know, every, in every instance, it's a fact intensive inquiry, but in terms of what schools can best do to insulate themselves, you know, getting to that governing body level, have the policies, you know, uh, communicate with your attorney, make sure you're aware as, you know, EEOC and CDC and the alphabet soup of agencies that, you know, that are brought to bear on this issue are coming out with new guidance and updating. And they've been good about, you know, they have FAQ sections that you can go through and, and they're, they're taking on these kind of hypotheticals and giving, you know, tangible examples. So just making sure that your policies comport with that. And then also making sure you're communicating those policies and updates to those policies. You know, as we alluded to before, you know, that, that kind of, boy, has the ground shifted from March to August. Um, and so the standard of care has shifted, you know, the, you know, the base of knowledge has shifted and schools want to make sure that they are keeping apprised of those changes um, and incorporating them into their policies and practices. Okay. Yeah. And that's tough. It's, it's so fluid on every level. Have there been any cases that you've been seeing in Massachusetts over the last few months that are sort of highlighting guidance for the schools? Not cases that have worked their way, you know, in and through the courts just yet. You know, it's still kind of early days, although it doesn't feel like, you know, the Groundhog Day that we've all been living since March. Um, but in terms of, you know, the, the litigation that would kind of in subsequent decisions that would kind of inform and start to build kind of some precedent in this area, you know, there hasn't really been much, you know, there have been, um, you know, some class action suits in the higher ed realm for say, Hey, you know, online classes, I'm not in the dorm, you know, I need a rebate, whatever. But in terms of like, you know, community spread and things like that, 
there haven't really been any any cases yet. You know, there are certainly cases when we talk about, we can circle back to the Tort Claims Act and, and scope of liability a little bit. Um, I glossed over that a little bit before in terms of, you know, sovereign immunity because schools um, and charters extends to Commonwealth charter schools. You know, there is a cap on their immunity for, you know, uh, acts of negligence um, on the part of the school and what would be applicable. There are There is case law. Uh, there's a long-winded way of saying there are cases that predate COVID that from which one can draw inferences as to how a court might rule on a COVID-specific fact or claim. Getting back to the Torts Claim Act, you know, there's a $100,000 cap on tort liability um, for public employers in Massachusetts. But that is a per-plaintiff cap, so it's not, you know, if you had, uh, you know, an instance of spread and you had a classroom and there's 20 kids in that classroom, it, it's not 100000 in the aggregate, it's per-plaintiff. You might have 20 different plaintiffs. Anyhow, it, it, it does extend to charter schools. And then, you know, there are um, provisions within that, without getting into the weeds of the whole Torts Claim Act, there are provisions that say, okay, public employer, you're immune in these particular instances, you know, regardless of the cap. So, for example, there's one section that, you know, immunizes a charter school in an instance where a teacher is um, exercising due care in the execution of a statute or regulation. Um, so arguably, again, there's no case law here on that, but if you are in good faith and good conscience as a, as a teacher delivering school programs in accordance with regulations from D.C., um, the attorney general or any other government entity, and complying with, you know, any applicable local ordinances, um, then arguably, you know, you, that immunity extends to um, any transmission of COVID that might occur while, while you're doing that unwittingly. We've all heard about asymptomatic spread. And so, you know, there are instances where, you know, you could say, arguably, again, it hasn't been tested yet, that there is immunity in that instance. There's also another, you know, aspect of the Torts Claims Act um, that would insulate a uh, school from immunity for any claim based on an act or failure to prevent or diminish the harmful consequences of a condition or situation which is not originally caused by the public employer or any person acting on behalf of the public employer. So you think about that. I mean, COVID-19, you know, without getting into the conspiracy theories as to where it originated, you know, it wasn't in a Massachusetts public charter school. I don't think I've heard that conspiracy theory yet. So not yet. Um, it didn't originate there. However, you know, that doesn't necessarily give you a free pass on any claim that's related to COVID as a, as a Massachusetts public charter school. Because, if, For example, if you knowingly encouraged or allowed a visibly symptomatic teacher or student for that matter um, to come into school or you didn't have policies that would discourage or preclude, you know, that infected person from coming into school, then arguably, you know, that condition did originate um, in your school, even though the student or teacher is coming from their home to your school. So again, and we can speculate and spin hypotheticals and it's, it is fun. Um, but every instance there, you know, to answer the long winded way of answering, circling back to answer your question, you know, there aren't really precedents or cases, you know, relevant to this kind of analysis that are on the books yet, you know, that have come out yet. Um, so some of it is a little bit hypothetical. And we think about those, you know, 
um, instances in which the court has found immunity. For example, you know, there's a, a line of cases around sports related injuries. And, you know, there's a case out of, uh, you know, Lincoln, it was a Lincoln Sudbury High School. There's, I think it was a soccer game. Um, and there was a, you know, a, ter- a terrible injury. Um, but, um, you know, the court found under the, the, you know, the Torts Claim Act that the school was immune um, because it didn't originally cause the condition that led to the injury. You know, and so again, if, if you didn't materially contribute to creating a specific condition or situation that resulted in the harm, then arguably you, you have immunity. Once you cross that line and do something as a school um, to materially contribute to a condition or situation that results in, you know, someone contracting COVID, then, you know, the, the immunity does not uh, adhere. Okay. So what can schools do then to reduce their liability? Big giant question. Yeah. I'm sure everyone's the, the, yeah, <laughs> really absolutely <looking> <laughs> and totally. I mean, so and and that is you know look to the guidance. Um, you know, again, it, it it is changing rapidly. So staying on top of it as we learn more about you know how this spreads. Uh, you know that understanding is continuing to evolve. Um, and CDC, you know, Mass Department of Health, DC. Um, you know, all these sources and resources, um, you know, we're looking to, to give us guidance, um, as charter school lawyers to, you know, advise our clients and, and make sure their policies, um, are being constantly reviewed and updated as necessary to be in keeping with, you know, the latest knowledge on this topic and, and, you know, keeping students and employees safe. Um, so that's, you know, that's the most important thing. And, and so how that gets interpreted, you know, whether it's, you know, these health declaration forms that are being required, uh, you know, whether it's an app or, or, or whatever it may be, that's going to be for the school uh, committees, the school boards to, to kind of, again, with the, with the help and guidance of their attorneys to interpret, to have policies that successfully kind of implement, act on the guidance that they're receiving from government agencies um, and make sure that, you know, what we're doing in terms of, you know, custodial, you know, disinfecting our classrooms, you know, what we're doing in terms of, you know, the pods that we're having um, for any, you know, on-site learning and how we're keeping those students kind of safe. What's our masking policy? You know, do we have a testing policy? Is that permissible? Um, and, and keeping apprised of all the, the, the laws, you know, in terms of the ADA, and, and we'll get into applicable laws a little bit later on, but, um, you know, but not just the laws, also the relevant guidance that's coming out from the agencies that are uh, opining on on COVID and how to reopen schools. Okay. Once a school has declared their guidance and, and provided a path forward, there is obviously a space of time between receiving guidance and saying, okay, we need to enact it and enacting it, um, especially once school starts is this an area of liability where, you know, schools can't respond in a heartbeat to some of this guidance? It's, it's going to take a little bit of time. Are they liable during that 
period of time when guidance has been released, but the school then has had the ability to enforce it? You know, I, I think, yes, there's going to be some lag time. I was, you know, amazed at, in, you know, having worked with schools for a long time. And I think, you know, charter schools are arguably, you know, a little bit more nimble maybe than a large public school district anyway. But how quickly all schools really adapted to COVID? We can argue about the success of one school or another and its distance learning program last spring or, or what have you, but they acted pretty quickly. But it's not going to be instantaneous. And so there's always going to be a little bit of lag time. And that gets back into when we're thinking about what is your vulnerability. When FFCRA comes out, and we'll talk about that, the Families First Coronavirus Act, where, um, Relief Act, where an employee, in this instance, where there's a law on the books, you need to comport with that law. And you can't say, well, we didn't read it in time or you know we didn't have a meeting that month and so we couldn't have a that your policy doesn't matter when when that's you know the law so if someone in that instance there are six permissible reasons for which someone can say i need to take a leave you know i'm under a state mandated quarantine order so i'm entitled under ffcra to paid leave you know you need to comply with the law for sure right and that's different than you know guidance the latest FAQ coming out from um, you know EEOC or or CDC or whoever you know whichever agency saying you know we think this is best practice um, now if that comes out on a Wednesday you're not going to implement that on a Thursday but but depending on how onerous um, it would be you know to to implement that and what is a reasonable timetable for implementing that guidance and incorporating it into you know kind of your new normal as a school community there'll be some you know some there's a reasonableness baked into that you know calculus that analysis and evaluation if you were to be sued for something in that kind of intervening period where hey the guidance came out a hot minute ago and you didn't implement it you know that afternoon and look what happened if you were doing everything up and you were current to the guidance up to that point i mean there is a reasonableness standard here um and so schools should act as quickly as they can um but again you got to look before you leap you know and, and you want to make sure you're prudent and you're comporting with open meetings laws in terms of how you're behaving as a, as a school board um and how you're adopting policy and such you know we don't want to get into kind of rolling back channel meetings where decisions are being made out of the public eye because then you get into another predicament legally. So, yeah, so it's tricky. I mean, the, the answer is, again, you know, when there's a law and you're aware of it, um, you know, you, you'll, you, you can adjust your policies, your school policies to incorporate that law at your next meeting, but you need to be aware of that law and complying with it, you know, as soon as it is the law of the land. And so with FFCRA and stuff, again, that's a good example. We can get into some of those um, uh, issues uh, shortly. But, you know, when, when that law is, it, it takes effect, it needs to be adhered to immediately. Okay. And I've also noticed uh, over time that when a new law is coming, you're getting warning. The law is coming and you have time to prepare for it. And that seems very well publicized. Guidance seems to be a little bit different. That can kind of just come out of nowhere. <laughs> um, so it's it's interesting that 
it makes sense uh, listening to this that you'd have that wiggle room of guidance versus a law and you do have a heads up on the law side of things. Yeah, certainly. And even, you know, within our education law practice, you know, it'll be sometimes, you know, you have your head in a project and you're, you know, you're working on a memo or something. And then, you know, one of my colleagues will, I'll get an email and I'll say, you know, FAQs just got updated by EOC, you know, this impacts some advice that we gave, you know, and so, uh, it really takes a team effort, even from lawyers who have their eye on this ball kind of all the time. So yeah, there's there's a lot happening. It's very um, fluid. Um, and when we're in the realm of kind of guidance rather than statute, it's not statute. You've got some lead time and you see it working its way through um, the process as as that sausage gets made. But with an, you know, an, an agency issued FAQ response or updated FAQ or revised response, um, when it hits, it hits, and you don't necessarily have that kind of lead time or notice. How important is um, schools' communication and transparency in terms of reducing liability? Is that important or is it not? Huge, always. And, and so COVID, you know, will only kind of serve to, to heighten that. There's going to be maybe some more attention. And it will be interesting to see, you know, anecdotally, um, you know, just having done some virtual uh, charter school board meetings, I think they're maybe getting a little more uh, participation, public participation than the, you know, the on-site, you know, 6.30 on a Tuesday night, you know, everyone's driving, you know, their kids around the sports and carpools and stuff, you know. So that's just anecdotally, though. I don't know if they're getting better attendance um, across the board or not, or whether that will dissipate over time as, you know, we all get Zoom fatigue if we don't have it already. Um, but, you know, transparency is super important. And and it's, you know, difficult as we all adjust to Zoom meetings for, you know, for complying with open meetings laws. Um, but it is, it is super important. Um, and it gives you a great opportunity to get on the record you know, with policy changes, um, it's, you know, it, it, it helps, but also, you know, the emails to, to parents that, you know, the traditional chains of communication that you have, whether it's text alerts or emails or whatever, just reminders are going to be super important because you can have a policy, but if no one knows, you know, it's like the tree falls in the woods, you know, if you adopt a policy, um, at a board meeting that no one, you know, public doesn't attend, um, you're still really, you know, you want to be responsible and accountable for getting that out to uh, to your families, to your employees, and and the community that it impacts. So um, it's super important. And being transparent also, you know, shows that you are being consistent in how you are interpreting your policies, how you're enforcing your policies. Transparency removes that kind of, can help to remove anyway, um, or limit that kind of suspicion of, boy, that seems really arbitrary. There's this new policy. I thought if they were going to enforce it this way. Here's how it impacted me. Okay, well, as long as there's consistency and transparency, I can see, oh, well, that's how they're doing it. I still may not agree with it, but at least I can see there's consistency and transparency. Yeah, you know, putting a parent hat on, um, I've noticed in my own school district's planning um, you know, they'll come up with a, a solution to something and then it has to change. Um, and they've not been very strong about communicating why the change. They'll communicate the change, <laughs> but not. And, and then as, you know, as parents, you're left sitting there thinking, well, 
I guess they must have run out of money for Chromebooks or they must have needed to give them to other students. So that's why they're not. Um, and, and so I don't know how much schools are truly on the hook for having to explain themselves and their decisions. Uh, maybe they're not. But I know just being on that other side of it, it's helpful to know the reason behind some of these decisions. Absolutely. And, you know, it's an ounce of prevention, right? It's it, it's a little bit of, you know, let's get out in front of this. Again, reasonable minds can differ, but we're, you know, schools are making decisions um, in real time and they've got a lot that they're trying to, to account for and to solve for. Um, so I think we're all in in the mode of, of kind of cutting a little bit of slack. We're inclined to do that, but if we're not communicated with, that's going to, you know, that's probably going to wear off sooner than later. And so, um, communication is going to be super important as, and as we've all kind of been forced to adapt to a more virtual environment, you know, take advantage of that as, as, as a school in communicating, you know, you can't completely just, you know, rest on that, but posting things to your website, pushing them out via email, um, you know, pushing them out via text, relying on your principles, because there's going to be network level decisions, right? And then there's going to be school level decisions. And, and even within a school, if it's a K through 12 school, there's going to be, you know, policies that are unique to the elementary school as opposed to the high school and such. And so, you know, just having everyone on the same page, giving consistent information um, repeatedly, um, sending those reminders, because we all are juggling so much now, you know, we need those reminders. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I wanted to go to the federal laws that you had been pointing to um, a couple of times um, that, and I'm assuming these laws need to be considered as schools are working to reduce their liability in this area. Um, Do you want to talk through those now? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. The ones that we've been spending a lot of time with lately as we're on the, you know, kind of on the precipice of, of, of reopening schools have been focused on employees, you know, on faculty members, really, quite honestly, you know, ADA, because as we think about, are we going to open in, in some kind of hybrid format? Are we going to open full on site? You know, some people might not be able to come back on site, or some people might just not be comfortable. Do they have a legal entitlement to an accommodation under the ADA? Um, and so the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act, that requires employers to provide reasonable accommodations to folks who have, you know, a qualifying disability, something that substantially limits, you know, one or two or more life activities, provided that 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 the employee with a reasonable accommodation can perform the essential functions of his or her job. And so you can see immediately how this kind of gets some gray area. If typically, you know, a pre-COVID it was absolutely essential to uh, an essential function of being a second grade teacher that you'd be in the classroom. But now, is that? And, it, you know, that would depend, of course. Again, now, however many times I've said it. If, you, if that school, if your school is on site, um, and it may vary from, you know, a special education teacher in the elementary school, as opposed to a regular ed teacher, regular ed teacher, regular ed classes maybe we've seen this in some charter schools maybe starting online whereas special education you know and related services delivered pursuant to the IDEA you know some of those services are going to be on site and so if you're a special education teacher an essential job function is that you're on site 
Um, and so unless it's, there's some undue hardship uh, involved, if you can, if you can accommodate, um, a, an employee's reasonable request, if they have a qualifying disability, you know, that needs to happen. So that, and then the FFCRA, that consists of, you know, two things, you know, there's this emergency medical leave, which is up to 80 hours, um, for the, these, you know, six reasons, you know, I've got COVID, I'm taking a COVID test and I'm waiting, I'm under a government quarantine, I'm under quarantine by doctor's orders, I'm caring for someone who's under quarantine, I have no child care, you know, there's this, there's this list of reasons under which if I qualify, I can get up to 80 hours of paid leave. If it's my COVID related, if, if I'm under quarantine, then it's full paid leave. If I'm caring for someone under quarantine, it's two third paid leave and there's, there's a limit. And then there's also extended FMLA. Um, so Family and Medical Leave Act, um, which all schools have policies around and have procedures around. Um, now there is an extended FMLA. And so if, if my child's childcare facility um, is closed, I'm eligible for up to um, you know, 12 weeks of leave um, under this new uh, expanded FMLA um, that is part of the Families First Coronavirus Response Act. So that act has a couple different elements. So those are some of the, the federal laws um, you know, both this existing ADA, you know, which has come into, you know, there's a lot of new kind of activity around the ADA and then new legislation, the Families First Coronavirus Response Act, um, which expands existing uh, legislation, the FMLA. So, you know, even with existing legislation, there are these kind of new wrinkles that COVID is throwing at, at us that we're having to grapple with um, in real time as we, you know, as we start to think about opening schools back up and we've got employees that, um, you know, are dealing with COVID related difficulties. Yeah. With the ADA reasonable, the pre-existing conditions, I would assume that those don't necessarily dovetail to some of the more significant, um, pre-existing conditions for COVID. You know, I know some of those are that they're saying diabetes or a pre-existing heart condition. I don't know if those are encompassed in the six um, ADA pre-existing conditions, but if they're not, is there, I would assume that's a very strange gray area and employees, you know, don't probably have much to stand on, but I, I don't know. Are schools being understanding of employees that have very serious pre-existing conditions for COVID? Yes. Schools that we've seen are adopting policies and procedures that are going to be attentive to those types of things. But let, let me back up for just a minute, just to be clear. So, so the ADA, there is, you know, if you have a qualifying disability as an employee, you can request a reasonable accommodation. Um, you engage with the school, the school engages with you then in this interactive process where there's give and take and everyone works to try and see what's a reasonable accommodation that we can extend to this employee that will enable him or her to perform his essential job functions, her essential job functions um, in a way that's not unduly, you know, doesn't impose an undue hardship on the school. So that's its own kind of calculus. And, and you know, CDC has not, you know, COVID itself is not a disability under ADA yet. However, as you alluded to, you know, there are, if I've got diabetes, now that may be because my susceptibility to coronavirus and what would happen if I contracted it, you know, that's more serious in, in COVID-19. 
in the time of COVID-19. And so that's an individual interactive process that, um, you know, the school, the designated representatives of the school and the employee would, would work on together. And, you know, a reasonable accommodation is not necessarily the employee's accommodation of choice or preferred accommodation. It's, it's just one that's reasonable and allows that person to do his or her job. The six kind of enumerated factors that I alluded to earlier, that's um, families first, coronavirus. And, and so that's, that statute is, is all about leave. Do I get leave? Do I qualify for leave? And if I can lay claim to and document, there are documentation requirements, one of those six you know, reasons, then I get leave. There's no interactive process. There's no, here's the document. I've been ordered by you know, the state of Massachusetts to quarantine for 14 days. Here is the, the order. Um, or my child's um, school has, or childcare facility has closed. Here's the, you know, on their letterhead or from their website or whatever, here's the notice. So, so those things are different. And there's accommodation and there's leave. So a lot of the accommodation requests that we're seeing are, I, I need to work from home. You know, I need to work from home. Um, and so schools are really what we're seeing in terms of how their policies and how they're setting themselves up to deal with these types of requests. A lot of schools are really going to engage in the interactive process with employees, whether or not they have a qualifying disability. The fact that I'm not com- comfortable coming back to school in, on site is not a qualifying disability. However, you know, the school, um, it's consistent with the ethos of the school, the mission of the school, how we, you know, how we model, you know, responsible behavior to our students. We're going to engage in the interactive process with that employee and try to come to an accommodation. Um, that's, that's reasonable, even though, you know, this is not under the ADA by virtue of, of a qualifying disability. Um, so that process is already in place. Schools have been doing it for years for ADA disabilities. And so now they're kind of taking a modified version of that uh, and taking that approach for, you know, what are certainly legitimate concerns that are being raised by employees that just don't, you know, aren't tantamount to a qualifying disability under the ADA. I, you know, I, I care for my immunocompromised mother and she lives with us. You know, that's not a qualifying disability, but it's a legitimate life concern. Yeah. All right. That's great. That's it. It's nice to hear that there's that flexibility in there for something for COVID specific. No, we've seen schools absolutely, you know, um, taking this so uh, trying to get out in front of it and to come up with fair and transparent, you know, uh, policies that they can implement consistently, but it's going to be difficult because what are what are the essential functions of of one teacher's job as opposed to another? Again, you know, going back to that special education teacher um, who may have to do some things in person. It just may be determined that that is essential. Whereas another teacher of you know whatever subject it might be, um, or just general ed, you know. That might not be an essential function. So how do you how are you clear about that? Um, and so we're encouraging schools, um, you know, to make sure they define what are the essential functions of each position of each staff member, faculty member that works at your school, because that's what you're going to have to kind of that's the starting point, you know, for that analysis um, and w- what kind of accommodation is then reasonable, um, you know, uh, you you determine from that point forward. Okay. All right. Well, this was very helpful. Um, 
as we sort of think about wrapping up, do you have any kind of final points that you want to share? I think by final point, I would say, you know, keep in touch with your attorney (laughs) as, uh, you know, um, for the administration and the, you know, the board members of schools, um, you know, uh, I think we've all learned a lot in the past few months and we've all adapted, I think, you know, probably some better than others. And there've been, you know, a lot of bumps in the road. Um, but this is going to be, you know, this isn't stopping anytime soon. And, you know, I'll actually take my advice from, you know, a bit of advice that I gave out regarding the interactive process on the ADA just yesterday is, you know, monitoring those accommodations is important. So you keep that, the interactive process doesn't end when you say, here's a reasonable accommodation. You know, you monitor that situation. You kind of keep that file open as it were, and you check in because what's a reasonable accommodation right now? You know, again, that may change as we look back to, you know, what was reasonable in March? Uh, what was reasonably foreseeable in March? What's reasonably foreseeable in August? I certainly, you know, didn't think when when my kids got out of school for a week in March that we would still be we'd be where we are um, in almost September. So, um, you know, by way of wrap up, I'd say um, things are going to continue to change, um, and just being willing to um, devote the time to staying current. Um, evaluating your policies, see which ones are working, which ones aren't. Be clear-eyed about that. Don't be afraid to refine. Um, And when you do, if and when you do, communicate, communicate, communicate. All right. Well, thank you so much. This was so helpful. And um, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I look forward to having you back again. I'd love to do a an update and see how things are going in October. Um, but in the meantime, good luck to to you and your family as your kids restart school and um, stay healthy. Thank you. Same to you. This was a pleasure. I appreciate it and be happy to come back. Great. Thank you. For more information about Tim or about education law in COVID-19, please visit our website at www.bglaw.com. We also disseminate this information on our social media accounts, and you can find those by searching Barton Gilman. Thanks for joining us. The content provided in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to constitute legal advice or to form an attorney-client relationship. If you would like to seek legal advice from a Barton Gilman attorney, please visit us at www.bglaw.com or call 888-273-9903 for more information. Barton Gilman serves clients throughout the Northeast with offices in Boston, Providence, and New York, offering legal services in a wide variety of matters, including medical and other professional liability defense, premises liability and business litigation, education law, employment, family law, insurance coverage, trust and estates, criminal defense, corporate formation, and intellectual property. The firm and its attorneys have received numerous awards and accolades including Best Lawyers, Best Law Firms, Best Places to Work Rhode Island, Outstanding Philanthropic Business, the Common Good Award, and Super Lawyers. For more information about Barton Gilman, please visit our website at www.bglaw.com or call us toll-free at 888-273-9903.